You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. I'm Stephanie Hafley, the Deputy Director of Academic and Student Programs and a Senior Fellow with the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. About a year and a half ago, the Hayek Program started a research project on work independency to explore the notion and philosophy of work and the responsibility and challenges associated with welfare provided by individuals, civil society, and government. To better understand these topics and find ways to encourage and support scholarship in this arena, we wanted to focus on the changing technology, norms, opportunities, and challenges of today and tomorrow. We are honored to be able to partner with the Niskanen Center, particularly Samuel Hammond, the Director of Poverty and Welfare Policy, to put on this conference on the future of work. We also hope this is just the beginning of the conversation. Technological innovation is a driving factor of economic growth that both disrupts current practices and creates new opportunities. As a society, we tend to both yearn for and caution against technological change, and economists, policymakers, and the general public have an interest in how technology will impact our society. What is the role of markets, civil society, and government in shaping the future of work and technology? What does social scientific and policy analysis have to say about these changing dynamics? And how do those social scientists and policy analysts interested in promoting an open society seek to understand and suggest democratic solutions to collective challenges that treat citizens as dignified equals? As part of this conference on the future of work, there were four keynote lectures to kick off the discussion. It is my honor to introduce Betsy Stevenson. Betsy Stevenson is a professor of public policy and economics in the, at the University of Michigan, as well as a faculty research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research, a visiting associate professor of economics at the University of Sydney, a research fellow of the Center for Economic Policy Research, a fellow of the IFO Institute for Economic Research in, in Munich, and serves on the executive committee of the American Economic Association. Previously, she served as the chief economist of the U.S. Department of Labor from 2010 to 2011, as a member of the Council of Economic Advisors from 2013 to 2015, where she advised President Obama on social policy, labor markets, and trade issues. Her work explores women's labor market experiences, the economic forces shaping the modern family, and how these labor market experiences and economic forces on the family influence each other. In addition to her scholarly articles and Bloomberg columns, she has textbooks available for pre-order now on the principles of economics with Justin Wolfers with Worth Publishers. Her talk today is on the future of work. Uh, I. Uh uh, want today to talk to you a little bit about the future of work and what you heard is um, some of my background is about thinking about work and family and so what I really care about is how people experience their lives and work is a really important part of their life so when I think about how technology is going to change our lives it's not just about the work that we do it's thinking about it much more hol holistically so I think that there are these two extreme competing visions of the future 
Some imagine uh, a dis uh, a, uh, a, a the potential for utopia with machines doing all of the work, people having plenty of income, very little unpleasant work to do. Instead, they'll spend their days enjoying art and music, pursuing their passions unburdened by the need to provide for their basic needs. They'll feed their intellectual curiosity and fulfill the human demand for personal interactions, right? So this is a, a vision, and I think that this vision is best captured in Robots, Robots Everywhere, a little golden book that shows children having so much fun with their robots everywhere. Um, and I think of this as the utopic version where the robots are our pals. They help us live a better life. They're not replacing us, they're joining us in our quest for a better life. Now at the other end of the spectrum, it's something that's maybe a bit more Terminator 3-ish. <laughs> a dystopia where people are replaced by machines. Machines develop the content we read, the entertainment we enjoy. Artificial intelligence will pick our friends and our politicians and ultimately take away any sense of human agency. Worst of all, they might deprive us of any kind of work. Human beings will lose meaning and income and perhaps ultimately be driven to extinction. Now these two competing versions sound really extreme, um, but in fact I, I've seen research papers that, try, that, that show the possibility of either one of them coming true or something in the middle. So which one do we think is likely to be right? Well, um, the, if we, we could start by looking at what economists think. And most economists believe that automation and machine learning promises a future of higher incomes. So this is a question for, from the IGN survey of economists. So prominent economists are invited to be part of this panel um, where they're asked questions periodically and they give their wise thoughts and we tally them up and we say, well, what's the view of economists? And so um, here uh, in tw uh, a few years ago, I think this was, it says, copyright 2019 on there, but I believe the survey was 2017. The rising use of robots and artificial intelligence in advanced country is likely to create benefits large enough that they could be used to compensate those workers who are substantially negatively affected uh, for their lost wages, right? So this, and you can see that the majority of economists think yes, yeah, the gains are gonna be huge. The gains are gonna be so huge, the problem isn't about us m being able to produce more, it's, it's really about redistribution, right? So economists think that, that the gains are gonna be really big, and I think to put that in perspective, we've gotta take a, a step back into history and understand that history tells us that technological change has the potential to improve our lives substantially because it always has. So when we look back in time, we see that you know, for, for millions of years, for thousands of years, we existed in a subsistence-like way, and it was only when technological change started to improve our ability to uh, our ability to uh, to uh, produce food for our own consumption and and the consumption of others, so people could move out of the farming community and do something else. So. From 1 million BC until around 1200 AD, economists have estimated that GDP was really stuck at around $200 uh, in annually in today's dollars. And so it's obviously impossible to know the exact amount for sure, but that's roughly at the minimum of what's needed to sustain life. So what happened was we got all these innovations and people were able to leave the fields and go to cities in search of work. 
And this ability to, to do more than sustain life is what sowed the seeds of the Industrial Revolution. Um, and I think that uh, what we essentially were, have been able to do for all time is we've been able to figure out how to do more with less. And this is what economics is, is really all about, is trying to understand if we improve the production function. That's what changing technology is. That's this little machine right here. This is this Rube Goldberg thing. There's our technology. And what we feed into it is humans and their knowledge and physical capital. And then we out comes output. And the whole idea of economic growth is we are going to produce more with less. But it's that with less word that gets people really scared because they think that we mean with less of this, less labor. Ooh, do we want less labor? I mean, efficiency sounds great, but not less labor. But in, in some sense, that's what the striving of growth is always about. It's about being able to do, do more with less. But that with less has frightened people uh, as, as, as long as we've had improvements in the production function, we've had fear of doing more with less. And so uh, we're sort of at a time period right now that reminds me of a different time period. Here we have the middle of the 1800s when we were making a lot of economic progress. And it was really, really disruptive. And here you can see that classic writer Marx who says something that I could imagine being written about today's technology. Right, what he says is, within the capitalist system, all methods for raising the social productivity of labor are put into effect at the cost of the individual worker. What he's essentially saying is when you improve that production function, those workers get hurt. So maybe we shouldn't improve the production function. Maybe technology is terrible. And he goes on to say that you know, they became a, become a means. You guys all know this, right? Everybody studied their Marx in college. That's why we go to college, to read Marx. Um, so, it becomes a means of domination and exploitation of the producers. They distort the worker into a fragment of a man. They degrade him to the level of an appendage of a machine. Doesn't that sound like somebody could be saying that about today's AI, that we could be reduced to being an appendage of a machine, right? So these fears show up every time we have a big technological change that creates a lot of disruption. And you know, I wanted to put the whole quote up here because you know, just the end, I remember I think a lot about how work interacts with families, and Marx did too. He said, it's not just about the worker. He's gonna have a terrible working life as he becomes the appendage of a machine, but his wife and children are gonna be dragged under the juggernaut of capital, right? So the whole family is really, really uh, uh, broken. But it wasn't just Marx. We can advance forward about another 60 years we've got this quote from Keynes, where you can see in bold technological unemployment. Right? It's the exact same fear we have today. Marx, I, I mean, Keynes was talking about in 1930 in a very uh, famous essay called Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren. Now, if you've read this essay, you know he's setting this up as a straw man, but shh, we'll get there. So he talks about how we're being afflicted with a new disease of which some readers may not yet have heard the name, but which they will heal a great deal in, uh, deal in the years to come. Right? So what he's, he is talking about the potential for technological unemployment to last forever. That 
the unemployment is due to the discovery of the means of uh, encompassing the use of labor outrunning the pace at which we can find new uses for labor. So she's basically saying everybody thinks the machines have come and there's no more use for people and that's why we have technological unemployment. Now, uh, Keynes was, though, a bit more insightful and what he was essentially saying is, no, 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 this is all wrong. We're in the middle of a short-run disruption. 1930 short-run disruption that you might all be familiar with. Um, and so what he said is a bad attack of economic pessimism, um, and it's common to hear people say that the epic of enormous economic progress is over. And so people thought we got all this technological improvement and everything was great and we were like, you know, thriving in the nine, you know, 19 teens and 19 20s and then it all came to a, a crushing, crashing end and it will never come back. And you can see he says that in the, the rapid improvement in the standard of life is now going to slow down and maybe our children won't even be better off than we are. Again, it sounds exactly like the fears that we have today, but he says, no, no, this is wildly mistaken. We are in the painfulness of readjustment between one economic period and another. And the reason I highlight these quotes, and I started here, is because in order to think about the future of work, we need to understand that it is going to involve a painful readjustment between one economic period and another. And what the future actually looks like is gonna depend on how we handle that painful adjustment from one period to the next. So, if we, there is, and I think this is one of the reasons why you see economists sometimes sound a little schizophrenic when you ask them about what's gonna happen. And that's because economists naturally think about the long run glory days, right? That in the long run, we're gonna be producing more, we're gonna have all this income, everything's gonna be great. And that's because if they look back and they think about what happened in 1850, undoubtedly we're better off today. Undoubtedly, the Industrial Revolution has made us all better off today. But there were people who suffered because of it. There was hunger. There was displacement. There were people who were moved away from their families. There were people who thought their lives were worse. And really, uh, you know, I'm just going to throw little plugs for college. You can also read Dickens in college. <laughs> and as uh, you're reading your Dickens, you'll get a sense of how disruptive and painful that period uh, can be, and so that's one of the things that novels do for us is characterize the emotions of a period of time and help us understand how people were moving through it. So it, it is, most economists believe that automation and machine learning promises a future of higher income that stems from the higher productivity. And I am one of those economists, I believe that as well. But I also believe that we may just not survive the short run disruption. And that's where uh, our challenge is. So how do we think about the short-run disruption? And what I want to do as I talk about that is to focus you in on a few th things to be thinking about. And I'm going to tell you right now, I'm just gonna confess. I do not know whether we will survive. And I do not have a recipe for you to ensure that we do. But I'm going to tell you some things to think about so that we can all move forward together and try to figure out how we get through the disruption so we can get to the other side where we have 
uh, the benefits of this disruptive technology that will allow us to produce so much more with so little. So we need to ask, first of all, what is work? Why do we do it? And how has it changed historically? And then we need to ask what kinds of disruptions we will see. And that, I will tell you, I'm going to really briefly sort of summarize where economics has been on that. But that's where economists are really focusing a lot of their attention, is what kinds of disruptions we will see. And I think that's a really useful exercise. But I think we also need to put it in the context of a broader understanding of what is work and what is our, our life's pursuit about. And then we need to ask what's happening with the distribution of income and what will continue to happen with the distribution of income. And I think that that is perhaps one of the most challenging questions. And it's really at the heart, maybe even more than the question of work, is who's going to be the winners and who's going to be the losers. So when I, I, uh, I like to, to tell this story because I think it, 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 it summarizes uh, where, you know, what some of the problems are with the distribution of income. But, you know, I, I was once in a, uh, in a car with an Uber driver. And you know, in Ann Arbor, we're testing a lot of self-driving technologies. And this Uber driver says to me, he just rails to me for the whole 30-minute ride about how terrible self-driving technology is and how it will never come to fruition. And then I said to him, what if you owned the self-driving car and sent it out to pick people up? Would that be a good technology? And it changed the way he thought about it. It had never occurred to him that he would be the owner of the capital. So when we think about all the drivers being displaced, if truck drivers, right, the number one job for uh, less educated men across the country is driving trucks, and we start to hyperventilate with fear when we think about all of them losing their jobs, is the issue that they're losing their jobs or is the issue that they don't own the trucks? And so we need to think about the distribution of income and then I think we need to be thinking about how the distribution of income is impacting our ability to ensure that we can survive the massive disruption. And I'm not a political scientist. So I'm not going to say a, a lot about that. But I do want to talk a little bit about what's happened to trust in government um, and, and what economists think is resulting uh, in terms of our democratic processes from changes in the distribution of income. So that's where I'm going to spend the rest of my time in this talk. And, um, let me turn now to, what, to thinking about this question of what is work. I know that sounds kind of obvious to you, um, but I bet it sounds way more obvious to you, and, I, and just I'm going to apologize for uh, this sounding really sexist, but it probably sounds a lot more obvious to you if you're male than if you're female, because women do a lot of things at home and have for many, 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 many generations that they considered to be work but weren't inside the market. So when we uh, uh, think about work, there's a trade-off where we need to think about leisure, home-produced goods, and market-produced goods. And so it's not a trade-off um, as economists, you know, economists have uh, in uh, almost every you know, analysis I've ever seen when we're trying to teach uh, how people make labor leisure choices. We think about labor, we think about leisure, and we ignore that third domain, which is the decision to engage in home-produced goods. But historically, home-produced goods have been very, very important to us. So I would say today, in 2019, very few people have home-produced light, right? Most of us go to the market, we earn a wage, we use that wage to buy some light bulbs and to pay our electricity bill. 
But for uh, many, many years, people had family gatherings where they made candles together to get them through uh, the, the darker winter months, uh, where people actually you know, used their labor to produce the light they were going to consume um, rather than going into the market to purchase those items. So we can go through lots of examples. This isn't just child rearing where what has happened over time is we have slowly moved away from home-produced goods to market-produced goods. And I think part of that's causing some of our fear of what happens if we don't work in the market. But for, you know, for centuries, women had quite fulfilling lives not working in the market. Um, and so the, uh, there have also been, so one of the things that, I, one of the reasons why I raised this is because it's actually really difficult for us to know how much people work um, today compared to how much they worked in the past, right? So I can count hours of work, and I'm gonna show you some data on hours of work, but one of the things that hap has happened is we have more people in the labor force. Uh, people in the labor force tend to work fewer hours, but there are more of them there, but they're doing less work, work at home. But there are some really obvious patterns that I hope we can all agree mean less work, People work less when they're young. So instead, they enjoy childhood, they go to school, they get education, um, and people work less when they're old. Instead, they enjoy uh, retirement, um, and people spend many years of education, so they might go to college, they might go to graduate school, um, instead of doing market-based work. Um, and we've also seen the typical work week and the number of weeks work declining. So all of these point to a decrease in work. And I, I start here because these decreases we think are good. Like I don't see anybody suggesting that perhaps I should pull my seven-year-old out of school and send him to a factory so that he can do something productive with his time. So nobody laments the loss of child factory work anymore. So there's lots of declines in work that we think are good. My kids actually really enjoy being children, and, and uh, my 10-year-old daughter has already indicated that perhaps adulthood isn't all it's cracked up to be, <laughs> and that if she could just enjoy you know, childhood a little bit longer, uh, that, uh, that that would be a benefit to her. And I think we're actually seeing that. We're seeing kids actually acting more like kids for longer uh, among some communities. Among what communities? Kids that are more privileged uh, and more well-off. So what do people do when they have more money is they, don't, they allow their children to enjoy more retirement. I mean, sorry, more retirement, <laughs> more childhood, and they and themselves enjoy more retirement. So we see uh, less work. I was just going to come back to this. So, uh, you know, I, I turned to this survey of what economists think so that we can have, you know, economists have a lot of agreement about things that the public often doesn't agree with economists on. Um, and here you can see that economists say quite directly that advancing automation um, has not historically reduced employment in the United States. But what is really at the heart of understanding that question is actually trying to think about what they mean by reducing employment because what we have seen is the dec declines in work that I've just told you about. We've definitely seen some declines in employment. They're just all declines that we think people want and that benefit them. But then it, it also points to the fact that when people get richer, they do try to reduce their work, at least somewhat. So here's uh, annual hours worked across a number of countries. 
Um, and what you can see uh, right away is the United States is kind of an outlier in not reducing its hours of work compared to what we see in other countries. Now these are hours worked um, conditional on being in the labor market. Right, so these are people who are in the labor market. One of the things that's driving that big decrease in hours, so you look at this and you might immediately be like, wowzer, like how did Norway go from uh, 2,000 hours worked in 1960 to only 1,400 hours worked annually, right? That's a huge decline. Some of that's coming from part-time work, women entering the labor force and only working uh, part-time. So anybody who's working that's putting their hours in, but it does also come from a huge increase uh, in the number of weeks of vacation people are taking. And so we see this decline in hours. So the idea that people might work less, it's not all bad. So, uh, and here you can just see um, the decline in 15 to 19 year olds working has really actually been quite recent. So this is the employment rate of 15 to 19 year olds. And you can see that it's just fallen off a cliff. Again, I think here we can all agree that this is probably not a great tragedy, but you might be surprised to see how much that that is a phenomenon since 2000. So we do see some declines before then, and obviously one of the things you see is in a recession, young people really lose their jobs, and they don't really come back as, as much afterwards. Why? Perhaps because it changes norms around staying in school and going to college. Um, in a way that it don't, they don't quite recover from, but you do see some recovery, right? So uh, coming out of the 2010 recession, we saw employment rates of 15 to 19 year olds plummeting to 25%, um, and they've now you know, resurged to over 30%. But that's still a far cry from the 50% employment rate we saw back in the 1950s. Now, we've also seen really big changes in labor force participation. And here, it's not clear that I'm gonna be able to sign it for you and say these are all good. So here what we've seen is a steady decrease in male labor force participation, is basically as far back as we've measured male labor force participation. So it declined uh, a, a bit more recently, but really the attention around the decline in male labor force participation comes from the fact that women were going into the labor force at, in such, at such high rates in the 70s, 80s, and 90s that it was papering over the decline in male labor force participation in such a way that people weren't really whinging about it. But once you had female labor force participation level off and start to decline, it became much more obvious that male declines in labor force participation were happening. Um, and, uh, and that also meant that household income started to, to plateau. Wives were contributing to the rise in household income through the 70s, 80s, and 90s as their share of household earnings rose. Um, and as women's labor force participation tapered off, their earnings have continued to rise, and they are the primary drivers of, of increases in family income, but that's obviously slowed with a slowdown in, their, rate of in the, their growth of labor force participation, and not only a slowdown in the growth, but you can see some decline in their labor force participation. So I wanted, because I do so much work on the, the family, and, and this is a big part of my uh, research agenda, but also I wanted to tie it in with technology. So what's been another big technological disruptor that we've seen in our lives? Well, it was the technology that came into the household and made housewives nearly obsolete. It, robots took women's jobs. 
They didn't have to wash dishes anymore because they had a dishwasher. They didn't have to wash clothes by hand or with one of those awful crank washing machines um, because they had an automatic washing machine. In fact, they don't even necessarily have to sort clothes by color anymore because they can put in one of those color absorbing sheets. Thanks, Shout. And, uh, you know, and wash on cold and everything will mostly turn out fine. So it's that, what did it do? It took women's jobs in the home and it pushed them into the labor market. And so how th that adjustment mostly seems to have been for the best. Women have opened opportunities for themselves that allow them to do something that they're enjoying, that's bringing a higher income for them and their families. So we saw a shift from outside our measurement scope, though, to inside. And this actually tells us why we're going to have problems in trying to think about this question of how much are people working or not working. What it, again, what is work? So I would argue that there's probably fewer childcare workers today than 40 years ago if we counted all those women staying home looking after their children. But of course, those don't get counted in our employment numbers. We only count people who are working as childcare workers for pay. So that gives us a really skewed measure of how employment's changing even by occupation because we aren't counting the stuff that happens outside the scope. So now with that said, actually dads appear to be working more today than they worked in the past. Why? Because dads have really stepped up their game at home and they're doing a lot more childcare. They're doing a lot more uh, household production, housework, and as a result, uh, they're t and they're working less in the market, right? You saw that decline in, la in male labor force participation, but it's not that they're getting off easy. At least men with children, these uh, are are actually working more when you put in to uh, when you take account of what they're doing at home. And so one of the things we might see is a more even distribution of work in the market and work in home across different populations. Uh, and you know that whether you think that's good or bad, the important thing is it's very hard to capture that, to measure that in our data. And we need to be careful that we understand that some people do have things to do. So um, I, the one question people might wonder though is, you know, people say, well, people really need work. They like their jobs. And I want to say that's actually true. People like their jobs. And the thing that's really surprising to me is there's been almost no change in job satisfaction over a quite long period of time. So these are regression coefficients, which I know are difficult to interpret uh, in a talk like this. But what we're looking at is how satisfied people are with the work they do. And we're looking at that over the period of time between 1972 and 2006. Um, and this comes from a paper I did on declining uh, female uh, happiness. And one of the things people thought was, well, maybe women have become less happy over time because of the, their jobs. But it turns out that's actually not true. Um, and uh, women have, and men basically have had very little change in their overall job satisfaction. But one of the things that we do see is both men and women who stay home are more satisfied with that choice than they ever have been in the past. And so one of the things that that shows us is that people, some people would prefer to stay home and not work, um, both men and women. And when they actually are making that choice, rather than having it be a constrained choice forced upon them, we see an increase uh, in overall uh, satisfaction. 
So when we put this together, we kind of have to ask, like, what is work? Is it about uh, progress towards a goal? Is it about rewards? Is it about meaning? And I would argue that work is what we do with our time in order to have the life we want. And that doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to be making, uh, you know, earning a market wage for it, but it does mean that we are pursuing goals and trying to find meaning in our day. But it doesn't necessarily have to be in the market, but I think it does have to be linked to some sense of reward some sense of satisfaction. And one of my concerns about what's happened to a large chunk of the labor force today, whether they're working or not working, is they're losing the ability to have a progress narrative of their life. And they need to be working towards a goal. And when they're even in the jobs that they have, they're, you, know, you hear these complaints, you're not seeing it in the job satisfaction data. So it's not that they don't like their jobs, but I, is it that they're not working towards a particular goal or don't know what the goal is that they're working towards. And I, I think one, just food for thought before we, we sort of move to my next question, which is that those with higher incomes are more likely to report feeling active and productive. And uh, the question is, can we help people feel active and productive while doing less market-based work? So the answer isn't obvious that we need to be doing market-based work in order to, to feel productive in our lives. Okay, so that's thinking sort of broadly about what is work, and that's really about that question of what will we do with our times if, you know, what will we do with our time and our days if technology takes a lot of the things that we currently see as work? Well, what kind of, of disruptions are we going to see? So again, we can go back to the panel of economists. The panel of economists are asked, do you think that there's going to be rising unemployment? And so it says, you know, holding labor market institution and job, job training fixed, the rising use of robots and artificial intelligence is likely to increase substantially the number of workers in advanced countries who are unemployed. And you see that we get a lot of agreement and a lot of uncertainty and a little bit of disagreement. So partially, I think what makes economists find this question really hard to answer is that unemployment is a disequilibrium state. So well, couldn't we just drop wages enough? So then we have a bunch of low-wage workers uh, who are, are working for high-return robots, so then we wouldn't have any unemployment. I think that that misses the idea of disruption. So I think the reason we will see a rise in unemployment is because there are some people who are really disrupted. Uh, and so, the, in fact, we actually already see this. And I think this is really important for us to realize it's already here. Somebody on the previous panel said, like, the future is now, which is just only happening to a few people. That's exactly what's happening. So this is long-term unemployment. These are people who have been unemployed six months or longer. And of course, what you can see is that it rises in a recession and comes back down. But I hope what you can see very clearly is today's rate of long-term unemployment is much higher than the kind of rates we saw in the 50s and 60s. We used to return to something where about 5% of the unemployed were long-term unemployed, and we're now returning to something that's closer to 10%. And so that rise in long-term unemployed, these are people who are really difficult to employ. And that finding it difficult to employ uh, it, the, the fact that these people are, are much more difficult to employ 
is causing uh, a group of underclass people who are part of that sort of negative disruption. And that underclass, we're starting to see problems with the deaths of despair that Angus Deaton uh, uh, and Anne Case have documented. I should say Anne Case and Angus Deaton, um, being that it's Case and Deaton and she is the woman. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, Case and Deaton have uh, documented these deaths of despair. And the, uh, the I, I think that while we can't necessarily tie that to the long-term unemployed, we're starting to get a sense that the labor market's already leaving some people behind. Um, so the, who's getting left behind? Well, a lot of our energy has been focused on the goods-producing sector because what we see, as you can see here, we see employment in the goods-producing sector. I got this data from you know, Fred, which plots things for you. And, and Fred chooses the scale. So I'm, I just want you to think about that. And I decided I was going to stick with Fred's scale for right now. And what you can see is that we had sort of rising employment in the goods producing sector. Now also remember the population's growing. But this is rising employment with some ups and downs with, with uh, recessions. Um, and then it starts falling off a cliff in 2000. This is the tragedy of the loss of manufacturing jobs due to technology. This is something everybody's concerned with. But here's the problem. We need to put this in the right context, which is this is actually what the US labor market looks like. The green line is employment in the service sector. The red line is employment in government. And the blue line is employment in the goods producing sector. Now, once we're actually looking at it on the scale of employment in the United States, because now we've got to fit the service sector employment on this graph, you don't even see the problems in the good producing sector anymore. And that's because people don't work in the goods producing sector anymore. Technological change has given us the rise of the service uh, providing sector. Now, as soon as I say that, someone's going to be like, we can't serve each other all coffee. Like, somebody's got to do something. <laughs> service doesn't mean that we're all serving each other coffee and giving each other back rubs. What <laughs> service? <laughs> the, the U.S., one of our, a, a big share of our exports is in the service sector. What are we doing? Legal services, business consulting services, we can, uh, IT services. We are, we are able to export these services because technology has broken down the barriers of communication and made it easier for us to travel and send people places physically. Um, we, services include things like entertainment services. So we've made it easier for books to travel around the world and movies to travel around the world. So all of these things have led to a thriving service sector. And that is what the US economy currently is. And people get very confused because they go back to 1950. And in 1950, we had a solid service sector but it was only a little bit bigger than the goods producing sector. Now it swamps it. And, and to put that in perspective, and so, the, well, the, so the, the research has focused a lot on this. And what we see is papers like Asimoglu and Restapo, which found, es estimates large and robust negative effects of robots on manufacturing employment and wages. Yes, technology has eroded manufacturing jobs. 
it has also allowed for the rise of other jobs. But part of the disruption is there are people who aren't prepared to switch from manufacturing to some of these other sectors. And they are feeling very aggrieved at their, not just their loss of income, but their loss of status, their loss of a place in society. And so this disruption is already occurring. Um, and it, uh, this other research has shown uh, that routine jobs, many of which are in the goods producing sector, are easily replaced by automation, which means we can be more productive in that sector, but we need fewer employees. Um, and we've also had skill bias technological change, which means that we crowd out middle skill workers in favor of high skill workers. So this result, this skill bias technological change, is why the college wage premium has never been higher. So college, the median college graduate earned, for those of you who weren't here when I made this comment earlier, the median college graduate earns 80% more than the median high school graduate. And that is coming out of the kinds of technological change we've seen. That technological change is leading to a world in which college graduates can enter the service sector and do quite well for themselves. Now, I, I said we've been focusing so much of our attention on the manufacturing sector, but the reality is we have more people in the United States who work as, work as office and administrative support staff than we have working in the entire goods producing sector. So we might be more worried about this decline, which is the, de the decline in the share of employment of people who are employed as office uh, and uh, support staff. So that I uh, had the privilege of discussing a paper recently where uh, the two authors, Dillinger and uh, Forth, we're looking at ha what happens to these kinds of jobs when technology comes in. So we see firms are saying, hey, we need to use more technology in the office. Maybe do we need secretaries anymore? This isn't going to surprise you guys. So we know the typing pool is dead. But secretaries, uh, you know, and the, the newspaper articles tell us all about the slow death of the secretary. But it's not that there's not secretaries anymore. Here you have somebody over here in an administrative assistant position. Um, what they're doing is very different. And so if you read this article in the New Republic, they basically said everything the authors found in the paper, which is the people who get the jobs are higher paid and higher skilled. They're coming out where they have college degrees, they've got more experience. They're required to be able to do more things. Uh, so they might be given more financial type tasks. They might be given giving higher intellectually demanding tasks, and that's because they have a better set of equipment to deal with it, um, because they have technology. But what that's done is crowded out the woman who went from high school to get her first secretarial job, who got her job because she could type really, really fast. That, there's, there's almost no returns in the labor market to saying how many words per minute you can type anymore. I don't think you, anybody even puts that on their resume anymore. Nobody cares. And that's really sad for people for whom that was the criteria that got you that job. And so that, that your first job. So again, when we talk about disruption, who is disrupted? And it's why what we saw in the last recession was people in their 50s and early 60s who lost their job in the last recession had a really, really hard time ever becoming employed again. And that, that's the kind of disruption that means that people are going to leave work early and have really nowhere to go. What's going to happen to them? And how are we going to integrate them in our society? So 
when we think about whether all the administrative assistant jobs will disappear, I think that there we actually have a natural way as economists to think about it, which is that you know, there's always going to be, everybody's got a comparative advantage, and there's always going to be somebody working for somebody in an office. The whole idea is that we don't, we might change the name of a job, we might not, but this, the jobs evolve and the tasks change. So the, what economists have done to try to figure out where the disruptions are going to be biggest is figure out what tasks are most easily replaced by machines. The problem is we can look at those tasks and we can say, okay, those are the tasks that people aren't going to do anymore. That's useful. The problem is what we don't really know is, is the job going to evolve? Is it going to get a whole bunch of new interesting tasks or is it going to disappear? And I think we're at the cusp right now where the changes that I'm seeing uh, when I go to conferences on artificial intelligence and machine learning and these guys who actually do that stuff come in and show what they're doing, it's you know, jaw-dropping the changes that we're seeing. And so I, I do sometimes wonder whether as I go to these, these conferences and we discuss which job is going to be eliminated, whether we're just really talking about whether the Clydesdales or the Rocky Mountain horses are going to lose their jobs first pulling buggies when we're right at the cusp of autos coming in. It doesn't matter. All the horses are losing their jobs, right? And so we're sort of somewhat perhaps look asking the wrong question when we ask which tasks are going to disappear. But it's to defend that method, it's the only thing we really know how to do. So let's move to thinking about the distribution of income. So I think we all know roughly what's happening with the distribution of income. Here you can see the Gini coefficient showing the upward march of inequality in the United States. Um, and uh, it's a relentless upward march and we can point to different periods of time that might have been a little bit better or a little bit worse. But Primarily what we see is things getting worse. But I do think it's important to realize that growth has also slowed and that's been important. So this graph, very famous graph by Raj Chetty and his team uh, considering economic opportunity showed that people born uh, in, in uh, the 1940s, 91.5% earned more than their parents. The only ones who didn't really earn more than their parents were the kids of like the Rockefellers. Right? So it was only the very rich who didn't earn more. Why is everybody er earning more? Well, it should be obvious to you when you see that. It can't be about changing places in the distribution. <laughs> it's got to be about the whole distribution shifting up. We can't have 91% of people move to the top half of the distribution. Someone, half, has to stay in the bottom half. Right? So this isn't about inequality. This is about growth slowing down. But then we also did see a tremendous rise in inequality. And there what we're seeing is inequality really going to the very, very, very top end of the distribution. So we could think about spreading gains more to everyone else. So what happens to the 1980s birth cohort? So these are people you know, born in the 1980s, looking at them in their mid-30s, what percent are earning more than their parents? You see the average is only 50%. But the useful thought exercise they did was what would it look like if we just had the growth we had before? And you can see that with the growth we had before, it would have been 61.9%. So we need the technology revolution that's going to allow us to produce more with less as much as we need to make sure that the gains are widely shared. Slowing growth down isn't going, uh, it, you know, is not a complete answer because with a slowdown in growth, we still wouldn't get so you can see that you, you know, what you get 
when you have widely shared growth, but you have the slower growth, is we get 79.6%. So to get everybody really doing better, we need to make sure that we get the technology revolution, but we also need to make sure that it's widely shared. So I've already mentioned that the college wage premium is higher than it's ever been. And here you can see just since the beginning of the Great Recession, what has happened to the wages of people with a college degree, with an advanced degree, um, with some college, with high school, with less than high school. And what you see is a peeling away of people with more education, a continuing peeling away of people with more education. The fact that the college wage premium is so high tells us that there are not enough people going to college. And we need to have more people get the kinds of returns that current college graduates are getting. Now that said, I know some of you are, are skeptical of that. It's also worth pointing out that inequality within college graduates is rising. Some college graduates are doing much, much better than others. We don't have a strong sense of why, but one answer is that what you do in college matters. So, you know, I tell this to my students every day, do the work. It's gonna matter. It's not, you're not there for just a piece of paper. You're there to learn some useful skills that are gonna allow you to do more and participate more fully in the, in the economy. So we know that part of the solution to ensuring shared prosperity is clearly getting more kids who are able to not just go to college, but do the work while they're there, to focus on it while they're there, to afford it, um, as well as complete it, right? We see more college students than ever before going to college with children. They have their own children. They've got mouths to feed, and yet we don't have a system designed to help make sure that they can feed those mouths and get through college. So we see a bunch of young parents trying to get through college, and they just don't have the support necessary, so we see very high dropout rates. That's a loss for all of us. And I think it's a threat to our mission of shared prosperity, of getting through the short-run disruption to make it to the long-term-run gains. So how is the distribution of income uh, impacting our ability to ensure that we can survive the massive, uh, massive disruption? Well, just Wednesday, yet another poll of the Economist survey was done, and they were asked whether inequality is straining the health of democracy. And you can see there that almost all economists agree with that. So economists are starting to believe that inequality is a threat to democracy, which I interpret it as a threat to further growth. And I hear that when I teach my Masters of Public Policy students. They treat growth like it's a dirty word. Growth is causing climate change. Growth is causing people to lose their jobs. What we have to do is end economic growth and everything will be better. And I think that that's really a mistaken idea of what growth is because doing more with less should always be able to be better for us. One of the things that we're seeing in this age of mass disruption is declining trust in all of our institutions. So I, I picked this one uh, graph to show you, and here you can see that the, that, uh, the typical distrust in government is pretty much at an all-time low, and it's become very partisan over time. 
much more partisan, right? Republicans are trusting government more than ever right now. Not really more than ever. They're trusting it about as much as they did in 2006, okay? So they were really low, but way more than they trusted it under Obama. Democrats, not so much trusting government at an all-time low for, for Democrats. So we're seeing this increase in partisanship in trusting government, um, which very much worries me. And the thing that worries me more than this declining trust in institutions is actually declining trust in each other. So we see, when you ask people, do you think most people are trustworthy? Most, can most people be trusted? What we see is pretty, pretty low rates today compared to the past. People are just not trusting people on the street. And the problem with not trusting is manyfold. One is that when you don't trust, then it gives you license to not be trustworthy. And that's exactly what we see in the data. People who don't trust go on to do untrustworthy things because they think, no, like, why? If, if other people aren't going to do this to me, why should I do it? So I'll tell you a story that for me describes the society that we lived in in the late 1980s and that I don't think we live in today. So in the late 1980s, I was a young high school student and I wanted to drive from my hometown in Southern Virginia to Washington, D.C. in order to do a, an informational interview with NYU, which was my dream college at the time. I went to Wellesley, it was a good choice. Um, but at the time, I wanted to go to the big city and I came um, and my, my boyfriend drove me to uh, Washington, D.C. to do this interview. Now, I had no credit cards in the 1980s. He had no credit cards. I had no bank account. He had no bank account. My mom had given me $20 to pay for gas. I had, got, I had uh, broken the 20 for some reason, and it was in crumbled like singles and fives in my pocket. And when we got to um, DC, I went into a McDonald's to change for my interview, because of course you had to be in a suit, I thought. Um, so I go into the McDonald's and I change, and I go for the interview, and everything's awesome. And then we pull into the gas station, and I go looking for my money, and it's not in my pocket. And we have no money, and we have no gas. And I don't know what to do, so we drive back to the McDonald's, and I say to the manager, I think I dropped my money in your bathroom when I was changing my clothes. And he said, how much is it? And I said, I think it was about $18.50. And he said, yep, I got it. <laughs> and he gave me my money, and I went, and I got gas in my car, and I drove home, and everything was good. But what did that take? It took a person who believed that if he, if he or she turned the money into the manager, that the manager would wait until someone came looking for it and would give that money honestly back. It took a belief in an honest system that it would get back to me and that it wouldn't be pocketed by somebody else. And I fear that today, somebody who sees a wad of money lying on a bathroom floor in a McDonald's thinks, I don't know how I'm gonna get it back to the person anyhow probably just get stolen by whoever I give it to. My, I'm the one who found it, maybe I should just keep it. It's that decline in interpersonal trust, so could result in a 17-year-old getting stranded in DC, trying to find a Western Union to beg their parents to send some money. But it's worse than that, actually, because it's why we have contracts that have to be explicitly spelled out where every scenario has to be considered, because we don't trust each other. And if we don't trust each other, it's great for lawyers, we need a lot of them, um, we have, a, there's a lot of friction getting in the way of us doing exchanges, and our economy doesn't work very well. So this lack of trust is really problematic. It's problematic for our well-being. I don't think that we live well in a society where we don't trust each other. But I also think it's problematic for just our ability to strike a deal. 
I need you, if I hire you to do some work for me, I need you to do it. I need to trust that you're gonna uh, do the work and who's, should I pay you first? If I pay you first, will you still do it? If you do it and I don't pay you till after, are you sure I'm gonna pay? Freelancers today get stiffed all the time. This is a problem. It makes it harder for us to engage in these kind of behaviors. So trust, I think, is really a fundamentally part of being able to handle the kinds of disruptions uh, that we're facing. And trust right now is very, very much broken in our society, not just between government, but between each other. So the last thing that I want to end on is I'm going to make a case for redistribution by telling you a fact, which is more money makes us happier. When I take money from you, I make you less happy. Wait, how is that a case for redistribution? The case for redistribution is that we do still have diminishing marginal utility of dollars. So what we see when we plot that, so here we have the general social survey in the United States, which shows that richer people are happier than less rich people. But let's look at a more detailed data set across 25 countries where we can take a look at life satisfaction plotted against annual household income. And what you should see there is beautiful, beautiful curves that diminish but never go to zero. Now, in case you don't trust me that they don't go to zero, let me take the log of all of those lines and show you what it looks like. <gasps> there we go. So upward and onward, we get happier and happier as we have more income. So we need this technological revolution in order to get more income to be happier, but a 10% increase in your income uh, it, a 10% increase in the income of a, happy, of a rich person will lead to the same happiness gains as, the ten, as a 10% increase in the income of a poor person. And it takes a lot less income to give 10% more income to somebody at the bottom of the income distribution. If I take a 1% reduction in, say, Jeff Bezos' income, and I redistribute it to people at the bottom, I get a lot of happiness bang for my buck. It makes him less happy, it does. But it makes other people a lot more happy. And so as a social planner, the case for redistribution comes from the diminishing marginal utility of dollars. Of all of you probably know there's the whole leaky bucket, what happens when we take the money. I, but let me just say that the difference is here are so huge that actually you'd have to have a pretty leaky bucket to not want to do some income redistribution if you're a utilitarian. If you're a utilitarian, you can increase social welfare by taking from the top and giving to the bottom, even though the trade-off is that you're making some people worse off in order to make many, many more better off. Um, and you see this across, this is now across hundreds of countries, both within and across countries. So that's where I wanted to end. There's a case for re income redistribution. The, the robot problem is really multiple problems. And one is, can we find uh, fulfilling ways to spend our time? And the other is, can we find a stable and fair distribution of income? And can people find a way? I, I think the solution is for us to not think about competing with robots. I'm never going to outmatch uh, a uh, machine learning when it comes to predictions. but. We should focus on what makes us human. What differentiates us? What is our comparative advantage as humans if we want to move into the long run thriving? But to do that, we're going to have to make sure that we manage the short run disruption. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.